this week we'll talk about changing career from software engineering to data science management. And we have a special guest today, Sadat. Sadat and I are colleagues. We both work at OLX Group. He joined OLX as a software engineer. Then he got promoted to an engineering manager. And finally, he decided to change his career and switch to data science management. So I invited Sadat to talk more about his career transitioning. Welcome. Thank you very much. Super happy to be here and talk to the community. Yeah, happy to have you here too. So before we go into our main topic and discuss your career transitioning in details, maybe we can briefly go over your career journey so far. So how did it start? Sure. Here's a fun fact that I think not a lot of people know, but I actually always wanted to become a doctor, an inspiration that I had from my father. So engineering or maybe data science management was really not something that became a reality much later on in this journey. I think, yeah, adolescence, uh, teenagers is when I realized that I'm super curious about technology. Those things fascinated me. It turns out engineering is then a better option. I have a bachelor's in electronics, and then I have a master's in informatic or information technology from a university in Germany in Stuttgart. In between my bachelor's and master's, I worked for a brief period in India, around two and a half, three years. Not, to be honest, the best part of my career. I wasn't doing something crazy, but I think my master's changed a lot of that. During my master's, while I was a student, I was also working for the Fraunhofer Institute, which is a very famous German research institute. As a, I'm not really sure what it's called, but it's a heavy. It's like a student job and you work on different projects with people writing their PhDs or full-time employees of the Fraunhofer Institute. Research assistant, I guess. A research assistant, yeah, probably. I think it's called a Hilfswirtschaft or something. That's the, the German word, Hiwi for short. But yeah, I think research assistant. And this was fun. That's, I think, where I got my proper exposure to software engineering. And also maybe my first introduction to vision. There was a brief project that I did with insurance companies the idea was to look at the image of a car and identify a dense in it. Open CV, good old days. Because mm -hmm. after I finished my master's, I moved to Berlin. And ever since I've been here, I've worked for Olex is now my fourth company in Berlin. Started at Rebuy, Delivery Hero. There was a brief stint at Daimler, the company that owned Mercedes-Benz, and now OLX. And for how long have you been with OLX? It's almost three years now. In, in Feb, I'm going to be finishing my third year at OLX yeah. and starting oh. my fourth. What did you actually study in Bachelor? So you said electronics, but I have no idea what it actually means. Neither do I, to be honest. It's been a long time. Like, Did you learn to solder? or? <laughs> right. This was an engineering degree in electronics. So I had a lot of signal processing hardware, really. That was the focus. Uh, semiconductor compositions. PCB design, stuff like that. Uh, not a lot of computer science. Actually, I had two courses maybe related to computer science in my bachelor's. But you learned to program there. Yeah, I guess I properly learned to program during my master's. I always had this curiosity. Like I said, so after my bachelor's, I did a job. I worked for two and a half years in India. During this period, I tried to learn programming, but I wasn't very good at it. Also, my job was called a software engineer, but I wasn't engineering any software in those days. <laughs> what did you do? I was a glorified accountant, I would say. I learned a lot of Excel tricks. Like okay. I know a lot of Excel shortcuts that most engineers probably don't. Can you do pivot table? I can do pivot table. I can do V lookups. I can do edge <laughs> lookups. <laughs> That's how you started the data science, right? That's, I think it's interesting. No matter what you do, it might not seem interesting, but if you're learning something, anything, keep at it. You don't know when it'll become handy. Some of the stuff that I learned back in those days with Excel, I do use today as a manager. I work a lot with Excel now. Do you work with something else as a manager? Documentation, I think. So the Google G Suite, right? That is my new IDE that I have. I've started noticing. I'm more often on that than I am on an IDE. Okay, so let's go three years back, or sure. two and something. So what did you do at OLX as a backend engineer? So I started OLX as a senior engineer for the search team. When I was hired at OLX, I was already in the field of search, search and recommendation for a while now, uh, around three, four years, I guess. 
So I started OLX as a search engineer. My first tasks, if I remember correctly. So the day I joined OLX, my manager met me in the kitchen, so in, in the lobby. And he said, we are having an issue on solar right now. Welcome, but I'm going to come back for you later. So this is my introduction. I landed on this ship and there was already a fire. Solar, as a lot of people who've used it can maybe understand, like sometimes you have a setup that isn't optimal and it's always screaming and shouting and burning. What is solar for those who don't know? Right, sorry. For those of you who don't know, solar is basically an inverted index document store that is basically powered on this library called Lucene, mm -hmm. which is the same library that powers Elasticsearch. So if you haven't heard of Solar, but you know what Elasticsearch is, it's basically Lucene wrapped under a different kind of like image, mm -hmm. very similar stuff. And inverted index document store means right. search engine, right? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. So exactly. So inverted index document store. I can go into a lot of details on what an inverted index is, how it works. But yeah, TLDR, it's what powers search for most most places. Mm -hmm. So you knew this before joining OLX because you worked for yes. a couple, four years already as a search engineer. And this is something you, you knew how to use. I have worked with uh, Solar quite a bit. I've also worked with Elasticsearch. I've dabbled a little with a few other niche technologies in search, let's say. But yeah, I'm very familiar with how these technologies work mm -hmm. so your first day there is a fire solar yeah. is down your manager is fixing that so what do you do yeah, i mean thankfully he did ask me to fix it because that, that would have been pressure right <laughs> i know i enjoyed my coffee met my new team uh life went on a week later we were writing the post-mortem for what had happened and i don't remember the details to be honest but it was always something related to the auto scaler that so for for those of you who work briefly with solar is an interesting thing right so solar cloud is designed to scale with load and our cluster was configured to scale with load now whenever a solar cluster scales out which is like adds new nodes there is a lot of cpu intensive tasks that need to be done which is like copy the data propagate it to this new node assemble the node distribute traffic to this new node, a lot of stuff that is very CPU intensive, throw that, ask a system that is already under CPU load to do that, and you have what is a classical, I don't know, fireball of solar crashing. Because solar wants to scale out, it cannot even do what it is doing, and because it cannot do what it is doing, it wants to scale out even more. Easiest fix is to stop that configuration, stop solar from Auto scaling out works all of the time. That's what we also did eventually at OLX. Fun fact, our scaling is now scheduled rather than automatic. So we do it at perceived intervals of time rather than dynamically with traffic. Mm -hmm. So let's say during night, it's two nodes. During day, it's four nodes, something like that, right? Something like that. Those numbers are probably multiplied by a huge number, but yes. 100? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somewhere around 50 maybe, but yeah. Okay. So what did you do apart from, you know, I don't know how much time you spent fighting fires, but in general, what kind of tasks did you need to work on? So what had happened when I landed at the search team at OLX is also the start of the pandemic or almost the start of the pandemic. We didn't know that yet. There was this new virus, news coming in from China, a lot of uncertainty. So we were putting out a lot of fire. There were some product roadmap. I don't exactly remember what, but... Two weeks into my job at OLX, we enter the German lockdowns. I think other countries had rolling lockdowns in around that time, but Germany had lockdown two weeks after I joined. There was a lot of uncertainty product. So there was a focus from management to really work on only essential stuff and, and things that would keep the business alive because back then we didn't know how long this would last, what would be the financial implications and stuff like that. So basically a lot of our moonshot projects were put on hold. I had the time I needed to look at the landscape and understand what our main problems were. And for what I identified as our main problem, one of our main problems, was the fact that we were still very much coupled to the big monolith. And this faced, uh, posed its own challenges, plus the configurations with our solar cluster were suboptimal. I created a proposal, shared that with my manager and my product manager to decouple search. It was an interesting idea. My ask to them was give me six months with zero product feature development, but core engineering work. 
and I will promise to give you the fastest iterating product at OLX. Three years later, I think the relevance team, which is now my future team, is one of the fastest iterating teams at OLX. Last year, I think we did over 100 experiments with new product features. So yeah, my leaders believed in me. They gave me the opportunity. And humbly, I think I achieved a lot of what I had promised. There were some delays. I think it took us a little more than six months. <laughs> but yeah, we, we eventually got there. We decoupled search. We improved the configurations. We also have backups upon backups now. I guess the last time we had a full outage on search, it's probably been over a year or two years. So maybe I'll try to summarize what you said. So you and your team had a super large service right? that was doing everything, including search. And search was a little piece of this. right? And then making changes to this little piece was very difficult because it affected the rest of the service too. right? And you suggested... Yeah. You approached your management and said, okay, give me six months. I'll take this part out into a separate service and I'll call this, uh, it will be a microservice and it will be responsible only for search. Macro service is what I like to use. I'm, okay. It's a little more than micro. I mean, it is a very bloat service. It does a lot of stuff. But in essence, yes, we wanted to carve out a bit of the, the big OLX monolith. And this helped us with a lot of stuff, right? The, the stack was newer, alerting, monitoring, where thought of before the product development. So it was very natural to have alerting and monitoring in place. We had a lot of experience running the old system. So we knew what systems needed to be optimized or what parts of the code needed to be optimized, what parts of the code could be rewritten in different ways. Yeah, in essence, that's what we did. What did you use for that, for implementing this thing? So the new service, and it is the service that is currently live, is written in Kotlin. There are a few other satellites around the macro service, which are written in Python and Kotlin, depending on what these services are. So search also at OLX consumes a lot of machine learning products, uh, spell checker, ranker, all of that. So we do have some Python services that are in the ecosystem, but the, the chunk is Kotlin. So what was your exposure to all this machine learning and data science? I guess, before OLX or at OLX, how much of this stuff did you already know? So my first exposure to machine learning, artificial intelligence, was during my master's thesis. <laughs> the thesis that I published was basically to propose an algorithm that was basically using a neural network to predict the energy consumptions at the Stuttgart airport. It was in collaboration with the company that is responsible for maintaining and running the Stuttgart airport. And so that was my first exposure. That's when I really got into the details of what neural networks are, how they function. I built my first network. Transfer learning was definitely not a thing back in the day. So I created my own network, played around with deep nets, shallow nets, all of that stuff, but only for the purposes of time series forecasting, right? So that was my first exposure. Then I was doing search at Rebuy. So this is my first company in Berlin. A couple of years into my job, Rebuy, amazing company, by the way, is a plug to them and not that they need it. They offer engineers 20% of the week to work on pet projects. The only condition is those pet projects should not be completely ludicrous. Like if you were to propose you want to learn knitting, they might say no. But for any tech-related projects, they're, they're super, super game. A colleague of mine, Mitchu, love the guy, by the way, he's based, I don't know where, to be honest, these days, but he's still at uh, Rebuy, not in Berlin anymore. So Mitchu and I decided to work on spell checker because that was a problem that we were facing at the search uh, product at Rebuy. And we wanted to use the 20% time to try and implement a deep learning spell checker. Long story short, we did not succeed, but we learned a lot more about machine learning, about training algorithms, that also actually kick-started the inspiration to then start the search tech community in Berlin, which is a community. We host meetups. Uh, shameless plug to that as well. I hope it's not uncommon for people to plug things and activities they're associated with. No, definitely not. That's why people come to the podcast, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so you started this meetup, this community, while at Rebay. It was a while ago, right? 
It was a while ago. Yes, the, the community, I think it's, it's over four years old now. No, it's five, six years old. It, it's an old community. Amazing. We actually went on sabbatical during the most of the corona pandemic for two years. That's why it feels much shorter than it actually is. Like two years of my life have been erased. I forget to factor that in. So yeah, the, the community, that, that's when it started. It got me connected to a lot of other people working on search, working on recommendations, because usually ranking is a very common factor in both these things. And then somewhere during this time in this community, I, we were inspired, both Michu and I, to give up the spell checker and pick up recommendations as a problem that we wanted to solve. We trained a few algorithms. In the end, Word2Vec was very popular in those days. And a lot of teams were doing, I think, what inspired us was probably Pinterest's Pin2Vec, or there's a lot of these two Vecs out there. Did you actually find a paper or was it like more a video? No, so we actually tried, to be honest. Matthew, I think, is more disciplined than I am in this. We did find a few official papers mm-hmm. on the Word2Vec architecture. But then I think at the end, it was videos. For me, it was mainly going through videos and actually hacking code. I, I gave up reading and just started doing stuff. I remember the Word2Vec model because that's the one that succeeded in the end. And a year from there, I think what ended up happening was the search team became the search and recommendation team. Before this, Rebuy was buying recommendations from a SaaS provider. And our model was actually better. We we did some A-B tests. We were 2 to 3% better in transactions from recommendations compared to our competition. We ended up saving, I think, half a million euros or something for the company with a model that we had trained in the 20% of our time. So that was when I was very much involved. So uh, the recommendation project was something where we worked on the data engineering, the data gathering, you know, all of the nitty gritties of probably what most data scientists do today, up to taking the model to production, hosting it on our AWS account, and then having a job that would retrain it. I had very little professional experience in machine learning back then. So I think now that I have worked with some amazing practitioners and machine learning engineers, I laugh at what I had pushed to production, but it was not very different from what the experts are doing today. So I'm just curious, like how much of the theory did you already know and did you need to know to actually do all of that? I love the internet. You don't need to know anything. You just copy paste and brute force till it works. That's one way that I work and, and it does work, you know, so... To be honest, I understood the Word2Vec model after I had implemented my, like, I mean, to conceptually understand why it works and what it does after I saw it work for the recommendations. Before that, for me, it was just, yeah, something that works. There are a bunch of companies that are using it. Recommendations is one use case. Let's see what we can do. I think it's pretty common, pretty typical for engineers. This is how I learned this thing too, right? So just try and see what happens. Act before you think. Yeah. It's not a good advice for engineering. And if nobody's life depends upon it, it's not bad advice. Well, what can possibly go wrong if you're just on your laptop? And oh, one thing, if it's a production system and then the entire service goes down, right? But then if it's just your laptop and you're checking if this thing is working or not, then it's another thing, right? Absolutely. So one thing that I've always told uh, colleagues and, and also engineers who've worked with me is if you invest in safety nets, because once you have a strong safety net, you're not going to be afraid to try stuff. Feature flags, experimentation, backups, alerts, monitoring. You know, if you have a robust system that is designed in a way that failure is not if but when. So it's never a question of if you'll fail. It's, it's a question of when you'll fail and prepare for that. And if you have that done, you can be very bold and make maverick decisions. And, and that's how you're going to succeed because, to be honest, it's a very fast-paced world where we live and we can't be cautious all the time. So in summary, just pick a project that might benefit from machine learning, implement it, make sure there are safety nets. So if anything goes wrong, there is a switch. Yeah. You can just take it down, just turn it off. And that's uh, basically it, right? That's your playground. Once you've got your playground set up, play, because that's the only way you will learn to be good at the game. You have to practice. And another thing I tell myself is I'm not a heart surgeon. Nobody's going to die 
So. Well, maybe there is a user who really wants to find this pair of shoes, and then because the search is down, they can't. It's a few euros or dollars lost. It's okay, but again, right? Yeah, be bold. Don't be afraid of making mistakes. You learn more from your mistakes than you will from otherwise. Okay, so coming back to your OLX days. So you saw that there is a problem and you wanted to solve it and, and you were new, right? You just joined and you came to the management and said, okay, give me six months, I'll make some magic and then it will work very fast. I did not promise magic. I had an architecture diagram that I had proposed. Okay. To be honest, it may sound cooler than it is. Like I said, so before OLX, I had done search at Delivery Hero. And before that, mm -hmm. I had done search at Rebuy. Okay. Unsurprisingly to me now. So you had some street cred, right? I had done the exact same thing in those two jobs. So that's how the industry evolves. That's why you were hired, right? I guess that's also, I mean, when, when companies are hiring, when we are hiring, when I am hiring, if you have prior experience with what I'm planning on doing, you obviously have a better chance. I was invited to the interview because of the meetup that I would host. People who had invited me knew me from before my interviews. It helps to be present in the community and to, like you said, have street credit definitely does help. Okay. So management trusts you with working on that thing. So you spent uh, half a year, it works, and then you get promoted to an engineer manager. Was it like that? No, no, it wasn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> but this definitely was a very strong point in making it happen when it happened. So after we had scaled out like uh, six to seven months later, we were also more certain about how the world was evolving. At this point now, uh, six months into the pandemic, Online businesses were thriving. There was a lot of business happening. Money was flowing in. So companies started to reinvest in themselves, right? The search team was growing. There was a little bit of a reorg and it became the relevance team as it is now in its current incarnation. And then the idea was to deliver customer value. Uh, we were doing experiment after experiment, A-B test after A-B test, product features were getting launched. So it definitely did add to my credit that I did advocate for something that was not very obvious, but it definitely helped us move forward. What was that? The decoupling project, right? Mm -hmm. The moving out of search. To be honest, how I became EM was my existing EM decided to leave the company. So you need to have the capability, but you also need the opportunity. And you need luck to have them both inside. And I think this time I had that around my manager decided to leave OLX. I had been at OLX now for, I think, a year and a half. And then things just started falling in place. So I think after a senior engineer, especially a senior engineer moving into an engineering manager's position, it's a serious recruitment process. I went through the entire process, including the technical screening, the recruiter screen, which in my opinion seemed a little superfluous, but we did do that. It was like uh, as if they were hiring somebody external, completely, the entire process. It was completely as if I was applying to OLX. The only thing that I had, so I think that's also the intention. OLX wants to treat you as an external because at the end of the day, we want the best person for the job. There are certain benefits to being an internal candidate is you can showcase what you've done in the past and they will believe you 100% because they see it versus I don't know if you're an external candidate and you say you've done something, but you can't prove it or your story doesn't add up, that could raise suspicion, right? Also, as an internal candidate, I could ask for people I'd worked with in the past to maybe give me a recommendation or to put in a good word. Those are things that maybe some external candidates might not, but if you have good connections in the industry, you know, that's also doable. Yeah, so I, I did the interview, went through the entire process, and then was I offered the position of the engineering manager for search and recommendation team. Do you remember the questions? It wasn't related to search, if you're asking that. It was more related. What was it related to? A lot of my interview was related around people management. Fun, maybe a little anecdote. Before I applied for the EM for search and recommendations, there was another internal opening at OLX in a different part of the company for an EM's position. And I applied there as well. And I was actually rejected. But after I got rejected, I spoke to the hiring manager because we're all OLX employees. And he gave me an amazing breakdown of why I failed. What he said was, you didn't really fail, but you're 
you probably need a little more to pass the bar. Yeah, that's something that external candidates usually don't get, right? Exactly. They won't get such a detailed feedback. And usually if you're an external candidate, your feedback is delivered via the talent acquisition team. In this case, I was directly talking to the director of engineering who was the hiring manager. He gave me very good points. I thank him for that even today. Dian, if you're there, if you're hearing, he's at Flink now, I think, leading their engineering team. Amazing feedback. I used a lot of that in the second round. And yeah, and, and this time it was a success. Mm-hmm. Well, what kind of people management questions people can expect? Maybe you don't give away the exact questions you were asked because maybe we still use these questions, but just to, to get an idea, like, is it about conflict resolution? Is it about like promoting people, firing people or what? So to be honest, the questions aren't that important. What the hiring manager is trying to understand is, are you a person who is capable of leading the team that is in question, right? Usually engineering manager or or managerial positions, at least at OLX, are very specific to teams. And that's what they're trying to understand. If you have a team that is riddled with conflict, then they will be looking out for a person who is better at conflict resolution. If you are trying to lead a team that is very technical and developing a platform type of solution, they'd look for a person who's more technical than otherwise, right? The advantage that I had with my interview for the search team was, I would safely say I am well-versed with the field of search and recommendation. So I had that to my advantage and I had worked with this team. I have been working with this team. So that was also an advantage to me, uh, I guess, which weren't uh, advantages in the other interview that I had failed. At the end of the day, the hiring manager wants to find a person who is capable of uh, leadership, rallying the team behind in, in tough times, celebrating with the team in good times. And in general, is somebody that the team looks up to, respects, and is happy to work with. Mm-hmm. And from a business perspective, the engineering manager's job is to keep a healthy team, add business value, make sure that uh, attrition is controlled. Hiring new engineers is very expensive, adding replacements even more. So those are some business metrics that need to be optimized. And then any person who can fit that profile and is the person for the job. But in terms of, you know, maybe any actual advice. So suppose I want to interview now for an engineering manager position. Mm-hmm. What can I expect? Like all these things that you said, how can I prove that I can do them? Usually uh, what also works is, it's funny, right? The chicken and the egg problem. Huh? When you're in an interview, they'll ask you for evidence that you have, for example, led a team in a situation or had experience in resolving conflict inside a team. If you're interested or you're planning to appear for such an interview, I would really ask you to sit back and think about the instances in your career where you have showed leadership. It could be a small project that you led. It does not need to be a group of 10 people. It could be you and a few other mates, a college project that you did, right? Where you acted as a leader to showcase that ability. Conflict resolution and business acumen is something that is also important when it comes to leadership positions. You know, So when you understand things like this, so look back at your career See instances where you have showed this and highlight those. So there was a conflict in one of the projects that I had. I should take a note and then understand what were my actions, like how I helped to solve this conflict. And when there is a question about that, I bring this up, right? That's the kind of homework I need to do. That's the kind of homework. So Ilyas, my old manager who had to leave OLX for me to get his position, always asked me to maintain your brag list. What is that? So whenever you do something worthy of mention, note it down because oftentimes you forget you've been an awesome person before. And when it comes to such interviews, it's very hard to lie, right? These people who are interviewing you, they're experts. So you can't possibly lie to someone and get away with it. The only way is to actually tell the truth. And in order to tell the truth, you need to remember that you've been in a situation like this. And generally in a 30-minute or a 45-minute interview, you cannot go through your entire life. So it's better to do that before, create your brag list, mm-hmm. and then walk into the interview with your brag list. Okay. So did you actually have a topping on your screen when you had the interview? Or, or you reviewed it before the interview? I reviewed it before. It was a sublime text document, very chaotic like most things I do. If I had it open during the interview, I would have crashed. Did you put it on Dropbox or how did you keep it No, no. So my method of organizing files is never closing a sublime text document. 
Ah, good. <laughs> Your entire break list was there. It's still there, to be honest. If I spin up, I have like 300 tabs in my Sublime text that are basically documents that are not final enough to be saved, but not untidy enough to be forgotten. Okay. My brag list is one of those documents. Do you recommend this approach? No, I absolutely <laughs> do not recommend this approach. Okay. I've become better at now is, uh, like I said in the beginning or, or some time ago, I use Google Suites a lot. So now I do organize my life around Google Docs. It's one of the best tools that I have used. Yeah, my favorite too. <laughs> so I am I'm moving gradually moving away from Sublime. I wouldn't advise that to anybody. So what was the most difficult part of your transition? So I don't know if a lot of ICs or engineers realize this or not, but we have a lot of dopamine in our daily life. Like, you know, you push. You mean code. when you code, right? When you're coding, right? You create yeah. a merge request. That's bam, dopamine. You get an approval, another shot of dopamine. You hit the merge button, dopamine. Deploy, dopamine. A-B test started, dopamine. Right? So there's dopamine throughout the day. It is a very addictive career. And that's why people enjoy it, right? That's why uh, people who are good at it get very successful at it. People spend time even after work. And it's interesting, right? For especially uh, challenging for people who, who are into it. As a manager, those dopamine shots stop. So withdrawal is what you go through, really. That is the analogy I really want to use, like a drug addict who stopped getting his drugs. And I was very close with my previous engineering manager. We spoke a lot about what would happen during the transition. He prepared me for taking on the team. So there was a lot of prep work that goes into it. Some people are lucky enough to have a mentor like I had. And some just figure it out, you know, learn how to ride a bicycle by riding a bicycle. But nothing prepared me for what I actually felt. The thing is, that the time it takes to see impact stretches from hours or minutes to weeks, months, maybe, quarters sometimes. And here, because the impact is not done by you, right? You exactly. need so, to coordinate this impact. You need to make it happen, but not yourself. And so that's the thing, but not yourself. And that's a very key component. So what a lot of early managers do, I think I've done this, is when you're not getting that dopamine, you immediately lapse and you go back to becoming an IC and you start coding again because there is your shot of dopamine. You feel that, hey, now I'm useful. I'm, I'm doing something again. And, and I did that same mistake. So I went back to, to coding because that was easy for me, right? But then at some point, I realized that every minute that I am sitting with my IDE writing code is a minute that I am not doing something more important for my entire team, which could be talking to another stakeholder somewhere, convincing them, getting their buy-in for a crazy project that we want to do, talking to a data science manager to get his team to implement a data science model. Every minute that I was with my IDE was a minute I was not doing those things. But somebody has to do those things. So they would start stacking up. And then you're sitting at your computer at 8 p.m., writing Slack messages to people. Your day becomes crazy. You have to stop being an IC and start focusing on what needs to be done. So how do you get your dopamine dose then? Or your chocolates? <laughs> I do have some chocolate bars on my desk right now. But no, that's not how, how you should be doing it. Otherwise, you put on a lot of weight. So one is be prepared, right? No matter how prepared you think you are, understand that you're not prepared. Because what you're losing out is quite a bit. Trust in the people that you've talked with about this transition in the past, your mentors, other people from the community, from the industry. They know what they're talking about. This is a longer game. I don't play golf, but I am, imagine this is how golf would seem like. You, know, you just keep going behind the ball, shot after shot, and then three hours later, Bam, somebody's a winner. I don't know how that game works. Chess, maybe. It, chess, maybe. But in chess, also, the minute you take down an opponent's thing, there's a bit of dopamine there. Ah, right. Chess can be a very fast-paced game. This is really, think of the most boring game, and then that is your analogy. It's golf, right? <laughs> <laughs> golf is what comes to my mind. And you need to be very strategic. So think about it. At least what worked for me is pick up a project and make that project your source of dopamine or completion of this project, right? And then drive it. Put all your energy into that a month or a quarter later when you've delivered it. The project you mean that you work on as an IC or you have other no, people work on? By project, what I mean is something that is now on your new desk, 
right? Uh, this could be something that you were working on in the past, not necessarily, but something that needs to be done now for the team. Uh, pick that up, talk to your engineers or to whoever is on your team, talk to stakeholders, invest yourself in completing this. Mm-hmm. Focus on one project. At least that works for me, like laser focus on one project. And you will learn a lot from the mistakes that you will do during the execution of this project. But when you have reached the end, and then when you get that one big shot of dopamine, and if you are cut out for it, right? Because I think a lot of people just aren't cut out for the job. If you're cut out for it, you'll know you've made the right decision. And if you're not, you'll know you've made the wrong decision. And then you will gradually try to go back to where you were before. Tell us more about this project. So I don't think I understood. So this is a project on which you work as an actual developer. Like you actually go there. No, 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 no. Sorry. Or no, you no, have please. somebody. Work somebody on this. work on it. Somebody work on it, right? But, but okay. what I meant was a project that needs to be done. That, that needs okay. to be executed in your team. You're leading this team. So you coordinate this project. Exactly. Your team has to execute this project mm-hmm. and you're the leader. They're behind you. They're supporting you, but you have to bring it home. But what if you're craving a little bit of dopamine before? Because that will happen in three months, right? But you want to have dopamine now. Exactly. So milestones, that's what I do now. Milestones, okay. Set milestones. And you have clear milestones. And if you're doing it right, your milestone should not be a quarter ahead. Mm -hmm. Uh, It should be more like a sprint ahead. Those can be. But I think for early on in in your management career, it might be very hard to get all of this right. I've made my mistakes. People who are listening are going to make their own mistakes. But in the end, I think what I want you to take home is understand that it is a complete different reward structure. Your reward is going to be much bigger and much more satisfying if you are into it, but it will come at a delayed time. Kent, we also wanted to talk about what you do now, right? Which is not engineering manager anymore, but data science management. So tell us about that. Maybe it was something similar. So you, you worked as an engineering manager for some time, right? And then you applied for a data science manager position. Was it like that? Again, I went through the interview process. The way we hire data scientists at OLX is very interesting. I love the process, by the way, is we have a panel interview, which we don't have for engineering. So I had to go through the panel interview. I did not have to go through the recruiter screen this time. So thank you, recruiting team, for that. But I did go through the panel interview. Uh, I had to present my case. I was given a case study and asked me on how I would execute it. I spoke with my team, my future team, the one I would be taking up. I spoke with the manager who was leading the team. I spoke with leaders inside data science because I also had a lot of anxiety. I wasn't sure I wanted to do this. I desperately wanted to do the transition because I had always been on the margins with data science, right? I had played with models, but never owned them. I deployed models, but never really controlled them. I wanted in on the fun. Mm -hmm. So that's why you decided to apply for a data science manager position. The way I see my work is there were challenges that I had as an engineering manager that were fun. But in data science, I feel like I'm, I'm enjoying the challenges more because the problems are less defined. It's a little harder to understand what really needs to be done. Building solutions is not as straightforward. The dopamine is even further delayed now, but it's even bigger chunks. For example, there's a topic that I have on my plate that I could maybe uh, share is regarding chat and and moderation. Uh, So currently, I'm leading a team of data scientists who are part of the trust and safety pillar at OLX. And and what we do here, maybe just a little bit about that before I get into some kind of challenges that we face, is OLX, as most of your viewers by now know, because you've been at this company for a while, (laughs) is a platform which facilitates user-to-user sales, right? So all of the content is user-generated. And you can imagine that uh, people are creative. They always want to game the system or uh, fool the system or abuse the system. Our users are no different. And we have a very strong team of people in operations, so moderators, product engineering, and data that are building solutions to make sure that content that is against our privacy policies or or sorry, against our community policies is not allowed to go live. And this includes, for example, even chat messages, right? You could imagine people trying to abuse each other in chat or scam other unsuspecting users. 
preventing this is part of my team's job. But that is the problem. So the problem is people want to chat with each other. They're good people who want to chat with each other and they're bad people. Identify the bad actors, bite the messages, whatever, stop it from happening, which is somewhat different like than the challenges that I had in my engineering team, which were a little more defined. And yeah, now I get to work with data scientists discussing on machine learning solutions. In this case, a lot of NLP, understanding the context of not just a message, but the entire chat, right? Like what really is happening here? Is this a genuine conversation or is this somehow fraudulent? Is one person abusing the other? Are community guidelines being violated here? So our idea is to develop a solution that would comprehensively understand what human communication is about and then make a decision versus the engineering approach, which is I'm going to put a filter for the word F-U-C-K. And if somebody types it, I will block it. How much do you think a data science manager should know about all these things? Because like NLP is a pretty large topic, right? Misha, I don't know, like there are a lot of things happening there, right? So Mm -hmm. maybe coming from this software engineering background, you don't necessarily know it in depth. So how much of this do you need to know to be helpful for team? Or do you even need to know that? Or as a manager, you help differently, not by pointing to papers? Mm -hmm. Right. I don't point people to papers. They point me to papers. I think there are different types of manager archetypes. You'll always have the, the manager who's a domain expert you know, being the domain expert. I am not a domain expert, neither in the topics of trust and safety, nor am I an expert in topics of machine learning or data science. So my focus is genuinely around coordination. I do understand machine learning and data science to a degree where I can have an informed discussion with product and tell them that, hey, this is a problem we can attempt to solve versus this is a problem that is better solved with an engineering solution or better solved with human in the loop solution. But from then on, my job is to filter the right kind of problems, set the right kind of success metrics, and share that with my team. And then they they take it from there, right? They propose the solutions, they propose the models. I am part of the discussions because I'm genuinely curious as to how they function, how they propose these things. But I am not a contributor to a great deal mm-hmm. in any of these discussions. So to answer the question, how much do you know? I think it's it's definitely helpful to know if the problem that is being discussed will have a successful machine learning solution or not. That definitely helps you. But beyond that, it's not necessary. If you know, I think it's going to be fun, but it's not absolutely not necessary. And then I guess for mentoring the team, you rely on more senior team members. Yes. So the way we structured at OLX, you yourself are a principal, and I have spoken to you on occasion to help people in my team upskill with technologies. So that's also coordinate, right? I know there are people who are better at this than I am. Why should I be kind of like, I just connect experts, people, and then that's it. I facilitate discussions, but I don't drive or own them. How much different is your job then from what you were doing previously? So now I guess you have more interaction with stakeholders and the nature of this interaction is slightly different, right? Because you need to keep in mind like all these things that you mentioned, like does it need a machine learning solution or we can just go with a pure software engineering solution, i.e. filters, right? Yeah. And things like that. Is this the main difference? So this is, I think, a significant part of the difference, yes. I am way more involved in product discussions than I was previously. But I also think that a part of this is how your company looks at the different profiles. And I think at OLX, a data science manager is really a counterpart to product and engineering. And my job, the way I see it, is to work with the others, so the product and technology side, to propose better solutions, to help them make decisions, and at the end, drive uh, customer value and business value. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, so so I guess my discussions are far less technical now and far more impactful than they were previously. Do you think you could have just jumped one of the roles? From software engineer to data science manager? Yeah, skip the EM part. Yeah. So here's my honest take, right? Like I said, you'll always have to prove yourself before somebody gives you the keys. How does a software engineer prove that he can be a good data science manager? I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think it's harder. 
Well, you did a fair amount of ML-related stuff as a backend developer, or you were just helping, right? We'd have to ask the the hiring manager if they would have taken me. But what I do know is during my interview for my current role as a data science manager, did use a lot of my success stories from my previous role, which was an engineering manager's role, to take home this position. Uh, had those success stories not existed, would I uh, have still been given the opportunity? Is something that the hiring manager alone knows and the committee that interviewed. So, like I said, we had a panel interview, mm-hmm. so the panelists. But as an engineering manager in the search team and recommendations team, you got uh, involved in all these machine learning related topics, right? And which gave you some credibility, right? Definitely. So one of the benefits of being an engineering manager for the search and recommendations team for me personally was this is one team that works very closely with data science. Or we were, the, the recommendations, the relevance team is a big contributor to the success of the data science org, right? So this also, not only did it give me the platform, but it also allowed me to showcase my working style, who I am and what I do to my future employers. That definitely added value. And the future employers here yeah, are the same company, right? The same yeah. company, a different hiring manager, if you will. Yeah. Well, we have a few questions. So one of the questions, I don't know if you can answer this, but maybe you yeah. saw some of your colleagues did this. So the question is, what are the challenges on getting a data science managerial position from other roles? For example, data engineering or analysis. I think you were doing something similar to data engineering, right? Mm-hmm. To some yeah. extent. Yeah. We actually talked about that more or less. Right. So I guess it shouldn't be difficult, depending on what your hiring manager or the team, potential team that your company that you're applying to, what they're looking for. I would say with that experience, so if you have experience as a data engineer or a data analyst, I think you know a fair deal of how the data science teams would work. Uh, you also understand a lot of the stakeholders, so that is to your advantage. You need to focus on your leadership skills. Why are you the right person to lead this team? And if you can convince them about that, then I think you should get the job. That's the homework uh, we talked about when yes. talking about getting an engineering manager position. Yes. Create your brag list. So like the all the advice you shared with us about this EM position applies also to data science manager. Yeah, exactly. Definitely applies. Okay, but keep this breakfast in a Google Doc, right? Not Sublime Text. Keep it in a Google Doc, not not in an unsaved Sublime Text document. Why did you not save it? Every time I tried to save it, a file name, I think, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. No reason. <laughs> I'm thinking about it. There's no reason. I could have just called it braglist.txt yeah. and saved it. On Dropbox I, or whatever. I didn't want to call it a braglist, maybe a little bit of that. You know, the, the name is, is audacious. I call it just a list. Yeah, maybe, okay. It's an outrageous name, brag or list. work list. Accomplishments. Maybe Accomplishments. Is a better. Yeah. Accomplishments, that's a better name. It's still called brag list on my Google Docs now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you still keep it? I, I still have it. I still add to it whenever I feel that I have done something worth mentioning. But how do you live with the... Because... You actually didn't do it, right? Somebody else did this. You were just standing there. At least this is uh, when I was uh, no, no, managing no, a team. Is, this is how I felt. This is so, so what you need to understand, and this is a very good question. Yes and no. Because the thing is, had you not been there, do you think similar outcomes would have been achieved? How do you know? You cannot test this. <laughs> you cannot test it as an A-B test, but you can, for example, go through the product the, the journey of the, the team or the project and see areas where you had key insight and what you uncovered or what you discussed changed the direction of yeah the, the project. And, and this is going to be there. I mean, if you are doing your job right, you are going to find instances where had you not been present, the outcome would have been slightly or significantly different. And that is what differentiates a good manager from bad. I mean, at the end of the day, if you are getting paid, and I believe this firmly, if I am getting paid to do something, the value that I bring should be more than the value that I take out, right? It's it's simple math. That's the validation, right? So if you check your bank account and you see some money, then you're still doing well, right? (laughs) Yeah, sometimes it takes... uh, No, but I I would want to evaluate it even uh, closer. Okay. (laughs) That is definitely a very good evaluation. But I would also want to have other health metrics, so to say, 
in myself. Well, what are those metrics? So, for example, one thing that I do look out, and this isn't very concrete or very, like, I don't know. So what I do look out for is whenever I'm having, like, for example, now, as a data science manager, I have a lot of interactions with stakeholders and, and product managers and engineering managers, and the amount of influence that I have where I can change their opinion from one to another, and then does my proposed solution deliver value? If A and B are there, then I am very happy at consuming the money that my employer deposited in my bank account. If not, I would want to get feedback and improve. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you put these things in your breaklist? Some of it, so when, it, when it's successful, it ends up in the yeah. breaklist. But when it's in progress, there's not probably yet. another unsaved <laughs> sublime. <thing. laughs> okay. Do you have any books or other resources in mind that you can recommend to the listeners? So I have read a few books on management. I can recommend a few books on management, but my style has always been ride a bicycle to learn how to ride a bicycle. You have to do it in order to understand how it's done. It's a very agile methodology start and then iterate and improve. One book that I read was, it's called The Manager's Path. It's written by a Facebook employee or an ex-Facebook employee. And she kind of describes her journey from the early days of Facebook and how it scales. I think that that one definitely helped me. There are a few other books that don't stand out because all of the stuff that you read in them is is stuff like you hear in a podcast like this, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody else's journey, it might or might not relate to you. Make your own journey. It's a very recommended book. Desks of quite a few people, yeah, especially those who just became engineering managers. I saw that they had this book on their desks. It was before Corona when people actually came to the office. There's another thing, this one from the founders of Netflix, No Rules Rules. It's it's more about culture, how you want to drive your team's culture. I think that's a very important part of being a team leader. I like that book. It's unique. We are definitely not running OLX with those principles, but it's nice to see how certain rules are maybe superfluous and, and can be done away with. I think the story is make your own journey. Understand and learn from others, but make your own. Okay. Thanks a lot, Sadat. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for sharing all these stories, your experience. Yeah, that was fun. And thanks, everyone, also for being here. Thank you, Alexei. Thank you. This is a pleasure. Have a nice day. Yeah, well, have a nice weekend. Bye, everyone. Bye.